The reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and then verse 29. Galatians 3, 16, and 29. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Now 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Mike, that's not showing up as pretty as it is on the uh, iPad up here on my slideshow on the computer, but I hope you can see it. I'll have to change that up maybe for next week, make it a little bit brighter. If you were cold this week, When you were cold this week, ironically, if you had been reading through the first chapters of Genesis, you would have read the uh, section to which many ascribe the extreme weather patterns, uh, the post-flood world. I mentioned last week that that the, the flood changed things. When God broke open the great deep and the water burst forth from underneath and He dropped from the sky, buckets as we like to say, but opened the windows of heaven and the water fell from the sky. Uh, it's, it's attributed to that cataclysmic event, the extreme weather patterns that we still experience. So it was kind of funny, I had one of those moments where my fingers were so cold, reading down in my basement, I was turning the pages, I said, oh, yeah, I can blame this little section of the Bible uh, on this. But I hope that you did uh, begin to read. Uh, It's not going to be too late at any time during the year for you to jump in and do some reading, especially since we're giving a couple of days each week for you to catch up. I've already used those a little bit as I'm trying to read ahead, uh, some catch-up days, and uh, I hope that you're you're going to enjoy that. I noticed a, a large number of you have taken up the challenge to read through the Old Testament with us. I want to remind you that it is not the entire Old Testament. We trimmed it down dramatically for the purpose of trying to help you to see a flow and a theme. It's chronological, the best we can, uh, to the best of our knowledge. Uh, but we also left out a lot of the wisdom literature and um, uh, much of the prophets. Uh, but we left in what is necessary for you to see the flow of, of God's overall plan within a short period of time, a year. Seems like a long time, but really you know how fast it goes, right? So we want you to embark upon that. It's two chapters a day, five days a week, and you get a couple days on the weekend if you miss some time to catch up, or to reflect, or to reread, or to make some notes. There's so much to see. If you were uh, uh, an astute reader this week, uh, you would have noticed that it was a year and ten days that Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were on this huge boat, this ark. It was a football field and a half long, 150 yards approximately. That's what 450 cubics amounts to. And uh, they probably smelled pretty good when they came off of that thing, but they, they came out when God said, go out of the ark, just like they came in when He said, come into the ark. And I, I think it's interesting that God said, come in, where he was inside already, and go out as if he were still inside after a year and ten days, 375 days approximately, and he said, go out of the ark. 
God was present with them. There's significance in that. But when they went out of the ark, He said, He blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. The same phrase He used with Adam and Eve. When they were to reproduce and fill the earth, He gave that command again to replenish the earth. So within those six, actually, Noah and his wife, as far as we see, did not have any more children. So within the seed of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives lied all of the traits of humanity that we see today. They possessed the genetic code that produced all of the variety that we see today and why we all look so different. Isn't that marvelous? That's the way it was with Adam and Eve, but it got narrowed down again to eight people. So it's through them from which we all came. And uh, God said that He would never destroy the world by flooding it again. We know from the New Testament it'll be fire next time. But He said, I'll never again destroy the earth and all the living things in it by a flood. Not all like this. And He set a rainbow in the sky. Can you picture that in your mind? I picture that it's pretty, pretty fresh off of being very cloudy and overcast, just like a rainbow comes today. It's, it's after the storm moves away from you that you look and you see it. Uh, because the sun has to be reflecting on that water vapor, right? And so he says, I'm going to set this rainbow in the sky, and when I see it, I will remember the covenant that I set with you. So whenever I see a rainbow, I think of that. God's looking at that thing like I'm looking at it right now. He sees it too, and he is thinking, I'll never again destroy it. But it also reminds me to get ready for the next time when he comes again, and all things will come to a close permanently as far as we know them on the earth. So, they dispersed from the ark. God laid emphasis on the value of human life by instituting corporal punishment. That is, I want you to know that life is so precious and that it's my prerogative to create it and destroy it, that if a man takes another man's life, his life shall be taken. And so, he instituted that and sent them on their way and said, now replenish the earth and, and be fruitful and multiply. And about a hundred years into this, about a hundred years into this, only about a hundred years into this, about 101, in fact, we read of the birth of one of Shem's descendants. Shem begat Arphasad, who begat Selah, who begat Eber, who, by the way, is the father of the Hebrews, that's the uh, person from whom that name was derived. It means from across the river, speaking probably of the Euphrates in Genesis 10.21. He had a little boy. Eber had a little boy named Peleg. He named him Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. And there's some question about exactly what that means, but I think it may be answered here in the next chapter. That's chapter 10. This is chapter 11. I believe this if you'll turn with me to Genesis 11, is the story of the earth being divided in the days that Peleg was born. And so he was named Division. That was his name. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. 
Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And so today we're going to look from Genesis chapters 11 to 20, but primarily focusing on 11 and 12 for our sermon, the problem of Babel, and chapter 12, the promise of Christ. I personally had not seen a relationship between these two events and why this was recorded, one successively after the other, even though some time had elapsed. But I think there's a connection here. I want you to see it. And I want you to see this promise also and take a little closer look at it. Well, let's take a look at the problem of Babel. When these descendants of Noah came to the beautiful plain of Shinar, they settled there. And a great number of them had become weary of God's plan to fill the earth. He sent Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah and his wife, and there was, he sent them out of the ark and said, Be fruitful, multiply, and Fill the earth at Babel, we see right here in this uh, following uh, record, that they said, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of all the earth. They were tired of traveling, tired of not having some creature comforts, I suppose. You know, a week of camping is plenty for me. A couple days, in fact, is a lot. But when you're nomadic, all oh, that can get old, I suppose, don't you think? Especially, you know, those of us who have experienced permanency and creature comforts and plumbing and hot showers. And so they got a little bit weary of this and they figured out how to make brick. They figured out that you could take it, take clay and mix some things in with it and make it stronger and, and let it bake out in the sun and it turns hard. And they said, boy, if we pile these things up, we can really build. Let's do that. And so they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so I guess this is the juncture where the first city slickers were born, don't you think? The origin of city slickers here. In all fairness, though, there were advantages to their idea. They all had the same language, which would have made it a lot easier for them to help each other and to love each other. And they figured that there was safety and security in numbers. Seems pretty logical, except that wasn't God's plan for them at the time. And so their, uh, their little episode here, where they said, let's, let's not do this anymore lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, was 
was a little more problematic than, than just a little bit of you know, a spring break in them where they just wanted to stay a little longer as we do on the last day of, of a vacation somewhere or, or a trip somewhere. We say, boy, if I just had a couple more days. It's a little, more, a little deeper than that. This is rebellion. This is, this is a group of people saying, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We are going to collectively build and stay here and not travel any longer to spread out over the face of all the earth. Matthew Henry uh, made a pretty wise observation, I think, about, uh, about the nature of, of humans to, to want to just settle down and be complacent. He said, inviting accommodations. Think about places where you've had inviting accommodation, uh, accommodations, maybe again on a, on a trip or a vacation, but how about even in your own home? Inviting accommodations, he says, often prove too strong temptations to the neglect of duty and interest. Being comfortable is a pretty strong temptation, isn't it? How many of you were just eager to get up in the mornings this week and, and go out and get in your vehicle and go to work? Or if you weren't working, some of you are still off, some students were still off, you just felt like, I just want to get out and take a walk this week. No, you appreciated the comfort of your home. And so we can understand this, but it can get in the way of duty and neglect. And I've often said to, to people who were contemplating whether they were in the place God wanted them to be, doing the things that God wanted them to do, to pray openly to God and and. Set yourself before Him to do His will anywhere, not just anything. Don't put parameters on God because He may want to use you somewhere other than where you're comfortable for the time being. But the problem ran a little deeper, as I said. It's, it's this. This is the problem. They went from being theocentric, that is, we are people of God, under God's command, and our, our role here, our duty, is to propagate and fill the earth right now and be faithful to Him. And this is one of the ways in which we can be faithful to Him. They moved from that to anthropocentric, meaning man-centered. Now we're starting to look at what we want. Is this not what Eve did? And is this not still what we do? when we become disobedient. So the people of Babel rejected God's command. They didn't want to be associated any longer with God's universal plan. And think of it, if God would have let them get away with it, which He said nothing they proposed to do will be withheld from them, I mean, He was semi-impressed. You know, He's looking at their intellect being put to use, and He's looking at their desire for unity and community. And He says, this is what man can do. But this is not my will. And so he came down. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that they had built this city? This is when they had built it. I don't know how complete it was, but they were going to build it to the heavens. Perhaps a caustic move toward God. Perhaps to challenge God. But God still had to come down to see it. We think we're pretty big sometimes. 
We think we know so much sometimes. And here, here are people wants to build a tower to the heavens, and God still had to come down to see it. Uh, let us be reminded of His greatness. This doesn't mean that they were grossly immoral. What it means is that they were seeking a new identity, which would in turn lead to gross immorality. It always does. Whenever a man separates himself from God, as Isaiah said in chapter 59, it will lead to sin, and sin will lead to separation. Once the decision is made, I no longer want God as my sovereign, as my Lord, that is the beginning of immorality. Just like the beginning of wisdom is in the knowledge of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord. So they wanted a city for unity. Come, let us build ourselves a city. They thought they knew a little better than Noah or God and decided to change the plan and thought the merrier and the safer if we build a city. This tower, as I said, uh, as opposed to filling the earth, they resolved to climb to heaven, was an affront to God. It was a direct rebellion to God when He said, fill it, and they said, lest we fill it. It was a challenge to Him. And then this name for identity. This really, I think, is where the problem lies with this text. Rather than being remembered by God for their obedience to Him, let me see if I can reverse that one here, or if you guys in back. Uh, back it up to that uh, slide and, and keep unity up there, if you would, guys. Thank you. So rather than wanting to be remembered by God for their obedience to Him and uh, thinking toward the future and God's plans for all mankind, these men wanted to be remembered by men. Historian Philo Judeus said uh, that he believes that they must have from this text engraved each one their names upon a brick, but in vain, because not even the name of one of these people is recorded in history or in the biblical record. You talk about a failure. God didn't even mention who was in charge of this thing. Although it may have been the descendants of Nimrod, as we see that he, the beginning of his kingdom from Genesis 5, included uh, Ur, included Shinar, could have been his family. No remembrance at all of these people. Matthew Henry also made a, a keen note here. He said, men who possess an affinity. Now ask yourself, is this me? Is this me? Men who possess an affinity for making a name of themselves may undertake great and arduous tasks, but are often betrayed by the evil of having offended God. This self-glorification or a haughty spirit wanting honor for self is one of those things that God said He hates in the book of Proverbs. Solomon said, these six things, yea, seven the Lord hates, a haughty spirit. Someone who wants to lift themselves up and be known by men. And as you remember in the New Testament, Jesus spoke about the Pharisees who wanted to make a name for themselves, who loved to be called rabbi, who loved to pray in the open so people would see how religious they were. He said, truly I say to you, they have their reward. 
So whatever it is that we, even as God's people, even as Christians today, might be seeking to make a name for ourselves. It can be in, it can be in vocation. It can be in your hobbies. It can be in anything that you are desiring to be honored for. That does not give any glory or any credit to God. It's like idolatry. When you start thinking about the things that we make idols, the list grows longer and longer the longer you can contemplate the matter. There are a great number of things that we can make into idols, and there are a great number of ways that we can seek self-glorification or an identity for ourselves that is not simply, I want to be known as a Christian. I want to be known as a godly man. I'd like to be known as as someone who was a righteous man or a righteous woman. When we trade that in, when that becomes dissatisfying to us, we'll start looking for some other way to be identified. Right on down to the most trivial of matters. You know, a side note, a note of warning. We teach this to our children from the time they're so little. Again, it's not gross immorality. It's a change of identity. Which leads to a distinction from God. A being separated from God. We, we say, for example, in the slightest of ways, what do you want to be when you grow up? Not what would you like to do for a living or what interests do you have that you might earn a living when you grow up. Think about that. What do you want to be? I want to be a fireman. I want to be known as. I want to be identified. I want other people to see me as a fireman, as a policeman, as an athlete. I want to be an athlete. That's what I want people to know me by. It starts when they're little. I mean, we need to change our language. We want to be faithful to God. We want to be identified as belonging to the Creator, to Christ today. So let us take note. Let us be careful when we, when we go and we dress them up in uniforms. And, and when, we, when we buy them things for Christmas, that they don't take up their identity in those things. And those things are not evils. It just takes good teaching and coaching. It takes instruction for children to know who they are and the difference between that and what things they might do for either a livelihood or for fun or pleasure. Big difference. <laughs> just be careful about that, church. So, they received a rude awakening. They became babblers. That's the word we use today still. Isn't that interesting? We talk about people babbling on. Don't, don't be tempted to think that I'm going to be babbling on and on and on up here. Huh? You probably use that word more for me than anybody else in the world, don't you? There he is, babbling on, babbling on about that. We, we'd still use the word, though. And uh, the ancient word meant to confuse. And the place and the tower became known as Babel, the place of Babylon. It became later a great city. 
a great empire. Isn't that interesting that when you study or read of the Babylonian Empire, that it traces its roots back to this very place, to this very event? I think that's interesting. That's one of those evidences in my mind of, of the truthfulness and authenticity of the biblical records. So what did Israel make of this record of mankind's moral failures? When they talked of this, come on, the iPad is so slow. I've got too much going on on it, guys. When they talked of that tower, and they were standing uh, ready to go into the promised land, and they're hearing these stories, and they're reading these stories, and they're studying about their history, what do they make of it? Because look, you've got Adam and Eve, failure. Then you've got their descendants failing in the flood. Then you've got uh, Noah and his family coming off. Noah gets drunk pretty soon after he gets off the ark. And then you have his descendants going and pulling this Babel thing. And you're Israel. You're the descendants of Abraham. And you're coming in to possess this land which God has promised to Abraham and his descendants. And you're one of them. And you're reading about this 0 and 4 record of great failures, the first couple and the first race. And then, and then Noah and his family, and then the subsequent lineage. And here you are thinking, what? We're never going to be able to do this. We're never going to be able to go in here and please God. He's so hard to please. Is he? Is he hard to please? Bayless wrote, in creation to the cross, the theme of the promised seed continues. But the theme of moral rebellion has been even more center stage. Moral rebellion is the reason the Canaanite nations are being dispossessed before them. Israel's own success in the land, listen closely, is dependent upon her recognition of the need for submission to God's sovereign rule. Recognition. Making a choice of leadership, God or me. He continued, the first 11 chapters of Genesis stand as a monument to Israel's solemn privilege as God's standard bearers in the midst of general rebellion, but also as a monument of warning that the human tendency is to rebel and allow society to deteriorate. If this happens, the Creator, he says, will judge. And so we turn over to chapter 12 and we see the promise of Christ. Turn it to Genesis chapter 12 and look with me here at the first three verses. Now the Lord had said to Abram, put yourself in the position of an Israelite several generations removed from Abram and you're reading this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I'll show you. To a, to, I will make a great nation of you. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What we have here is a reversal of the problem of Babel. They desired unity, they desired security, and they desired an identity. And in this promise, look what's couched in this promise. God promises to give Israel first as the first of this dual fulfillment of this, of this promise. 
He promised first to make them a great nation. Then he promised that he would give them his own divine protection. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. I will be your God. I will be your divine protectant. And then he says, I'll give you an identity. I will make your name great. I will make your name great. You'll be known as my people. And in fact, even when Israel forgot who they were, their neighbors recognized them as the people of Jehovah God and oftentimes would remind them of it. They oftentimes shrank back in in awe that Israel would leave this God whom they understood had done great things in recent history. Well, that should be enough to satisfy the desire of any sane person. To be a part of a great and unified nation, to have the security of God dwelling in a fruitful land, and then to be called children of God. But there's this last part of the promise that stands out. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be, future tense, blessed. And what we have here is a reference back to this seed promise. And God is picking it up again. Talking about in you, Abram, in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will one day be blessed. And so He speaks of another fulfillment to come. Let's finish the sermon by looking at Galatians chapter 3 at a couple verses and this same pattern. Galatians chapter 3, turn there with me if you would, to verse 16. Galatians 3.16, where our scripture reading was. Paul wrote here concerning this seed promise to help Christians understand that they are sons of Abraham, just like we sing at our vacation Bible schools. He said, now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Now jump over to verse 26. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so we see here promised unity for those in Christ, for His church. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Here the Babel builders would have been satisfied to know that God did intend that there be a time when when people would be unified and come together under Him and have a permanence, if you will. Also, we see the security promised here. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Didn't John say in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? Here's that divine protection from the Father above for His church here. You seed of Abraham, you also shall be protected by God by putting your faith in Christ. And now look at this last thing. If you are Christ's, there's your identity. 
If you put your faith in Him, what you do is you put your identity in Him. You don't seek any longer the glory and honor of men to be hailed for your job title or for your accomplishments or for where you live or how much money you have or for your children's accomplishments or for any other thing, church work that you might do that you wish people would notice. You don't desire that anymore. If you're Christ's, all glory goes to Him. All hail the power of Jesus' name, Rodney Lettuce in singing. Everything on the earth owes their origin, owes their glory, owes their identity to Him. He made us. He is our husband. He's our great lover. He's our God. And He says, if you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He'll abide in you and you in Him, 1 John 4, 15. Put your identity in Him. See, through Christ, all of these things are restored. All of these things that the restless Babel builders wanted to seek and find on their own time and in their own way, God in His time and in His way said, through my church. That's my plan. Oh, they were early in the plan, trying to bring it to a close. And here we are now, and He says, you may enjoy the rest. The church is like your ark. I'm in it. I'm present with you. You can be separated from the sinful world through water. Be baptized into Christ. As many of you as have done this, come together in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that relationship between the flood, between Genesis 11, 12, and now the church. All along, God has planned what you and I are to enjoy. And that is this great unity of fellowship that we have in the church. I hope that you're a part of it. Most of you here are, but there may be some of you who are saying, yet, I've not placed membership. First place identity. First give to God your life. Let Him be the sovereign ruler of your life. And then take on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do that today. Don't let another day go by. Let's stand and sing. So let's say.